0: Welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Shira Cohn, and we've got a really exciting show for you today. I'm here with Sarah Abravaya stein Professor and Maurice Amato Endowed Chair in Sephardic Studies at the University of California, Los Angeles. She's joining me to discuss her new book, Extraterritorial Dreams, European Citizenship, Sephardi Jews, and the Ottoman 20th Century, published in 2016 by Chicago University Press. Sarah, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to have you here today.
1: And I'm excited to talk to you.
0: Wonderful. So let's get right into it. Um, My first question is really what initially drew you to this topic and how does it fit into the larger themes that you discuss in your general scholarship?
1: Well, this is a topic that unfolded for me over many, many years of research into the history of Sephardic Jewelry and Jews of the wider Mediterranean and Middle East. Um, And I say that because it's a topic, if you went out to search for it, it would be difficult to pursue adequately because it seeps through the history of almost every place in the Mediterranean and Middle East where Jews resided or through which they moved and extended outwards uh, to all the many emigre and diaspora settings in which they lived. What I mean, I think, will become a little more apparent as our conversation continues. But um, for the moment, what I would say is I began to notice that almost every archive I visited in the course of my research as a professional historian, whether it was a private collection or a, a government archive or a foreign ministry archive or a community archive, I kept stumbling over documents um, about this rather um, ubiquitous and also little understood legal reality of people who lived with papers of a country in which they never lived or never had intention to live in. And so um, the, the process was that I began collecting and amassing, and it took me many, many years to begin to connect dots between stories that even while, as I said a minute ago, they were they were ubiquitous in a way, their connective tissue was still opaque to me until I really began to take the project seriously. And you
0: call this, shall we say, population or cohort of individuals um, legal misfits. And mm-hmm. I wonder if you can tell me what you mean by legal misfits and really a bit more about what the protege system is.
1: Sure. Um, Well, I would start by saying that the field of Jewish history, for the most part, has been organized, the field of modern Jewish history, has been organized in the way that modern historians of other fields tend to organize themselves, not always, but tend to organize themselves. And that is along national lines. So for the field as a whole, it is more typical for a scholar to focus on German jewelry, or on Russian jewelry, or on Polish jewelry, and and so on and so forth. Now, this is shifting with time, there are more people like myself who are engaged in comparative work, or transnational work, or global histories. But the reason I call them legal misfits, the the folks that I'm talking about in this book, and I'll, I'll come back in a minute to the question about what the protege status actually meant, is that they defy the categories, both that historians have applied to modern Jewish history, and also the categories that we tend to think of as associated with the shaping of modern law and of citizenship. And that is that citizenship um, is uh, something that you have or you don't have. And especially in the field of Jewish studies, it's something I talk about in, in the book. It tends to be assumed that the course of modern Jewish history can be explained politically and legally um, in terms of whether an, an individual, and usually we're speaking here for the period under, that I'm exploring about men, but women are also a large part of my story. It's assumed that you either are a citizen or you're a subject, maybe of an empire or a colony. And here I was stumbling repeatedly over people who were neither. They didn't fit into the categories that scholars of citizenship law tend to associate with modern, modern citizenry. They also don't fit into the categories that we tend to associate, legally speaking, with modern Jews. So all of that begs the question of what is a protege? And um, there isn't a single answer. In a sense, what this book is about is in thinking about a very, very dense category that um, at the time, the period that I'm exploring, many people who had the authority to grant or deny individual Jewish women and men legal status, they themselves didn't always understand the terms of um, legal categorization that they had the authority to offer. So that is a bit ambiguous and I can try and make it a bit concrete. If you'll let me um, delve a little bit into the Ottoman context. um, (laughs) That That actually
0: is my next question. Just really set the stage (laughs) uh, in the Ottoman 20th century, as you say.
1: Right. Well, so I, I both have been talking about it as an abstraction and you're right to focus on that term legal misfits because I'm interested in people who defy what we think to be the logic of modern citizenship law. But more specifically, what I'm interested in uh, are Jews who were born in the Ottoman Empire or who were descended from the Ottoman Empire, who, according to a series of laws that um, English speaking, reading readers might know as the capitulatory regime, a series of laws that stretched back to the 16th century and were signed between the Ottoman authorities and the European authorities. These laws granted a degree of autonomy to non-Ottoman subjects who lived or worked or passed through the Ottoman Empire. And conversely, that granted Ottoman subjects who lived or worked in or passed through the European territories granted them a degree of legal autonomy and protection from things like fees and tolls and fines and potentially military conscription. Now, um, those who lived in the Ottoman Empire who were granted this status of being so-called protégés, that's the way the the French talked about it. The British used the word British protected persons, but both of those terms actually have their own complicated history. I won't digress (laughs) into now, but those people who held the protégé status were originally meant to be Christians and Jews, and at the very beginning in the 16th century, they were mostly Christians. But over time, the number of Jews who acquired or who sought the protege status grew and grew. And it's a it's a sort of small tributary of the project. But one of the things I talk about is that even this idea that it was only non-Muslims who could become proteges blew up in the 19th and 20th century, if not earlier. And Um, A Jew could acquire the protege status and convert to Islam, becoming a Muslim protege, even though no such thing ever was meant to exist. So it's a very complicated landscape. But I am talking really about what I call in the book an early modern legal order that is inherited in the modern period. And everything we've said right now has been on something of a realm of abstraction. But it's actually a very concrete condition for Jewish women and men. It means that, for example, you might be uh, a Jew living in the great Jewish Sephardic cultural capital of Salonika, present day Thessaloniki, Greece, and you might have grown up there and your parents might have grown up there and your grandparents might have grown up there. You might have been there for five generations, but you would still hold Italian papers based on a longer historical and familial trajectory. And if you held these papers, it could make the difference between life and death in the course of the 20th century. And the book is really focused not on the long history of the protege system, but what happens, as I describe in the book, when the protege system bumps against a modern passport regime. And what happens when um, the assumption of states and also of individuals and certainly local consular agents and people um, empowered with the right to approve or deny your legal status. What happens when this fuzzy early modern legal order bumps up against a modern nationalizing world? And what does it mean for women and men and, and children and families who um, carry papers or lose their status, or seek to renew their status, or their status expires, or their papers are burned, um, or in questions of inheritance and death and crime? What actually happens to people when um, very abstract and complex legal categories are tested? So
0: let me ask you something. What... um what are What is the impetus for, especially in this modern period, European nations to grant these papers, especially to Sephardi Jews? What's sort of, you know, in it for them, shall we say? Right. And why are Jews question. going to seek out European papers if they're subjects of the, or citizens of the Ottoman Empire?
1: That's a fantastic question. And unfortunately, it too has no single answer. <laughs> um, but um, what I've learned is that there are, the, the fact that there isn't a single answer is really important. We might think that the answer would exist in a foreign ministry directive or in national legal codes. But actually, um, this was felt out on the ground in the course of human interactions between the many, many layers of people who represented states and the many kinds of Jews who Thought about becoming proteges or, or inherited the protege status or um, acquired it and, and perhaps it threatened to lose it. Um, these were not cut and dry legal um, entities. Now, what, what might make the protege status appealing for a, a nation? Um, it might be that a country wanted to cultivate a collection of merchants in a given city who would funnel their taxes to the home nation, let's, call, let's say Britain, rather than to the local authorities. So there's a financial motive, one. The second possibility is currying um, influence. There was an idea, which I think turns out to be more of a fantastical idea than a solid one, but there was the idea that if you gave these papers... You would be acquiring a kind of um, local lobbying force who would represent your interests, as we all know very well from contemporary politics. Um, that you know you can never really rely on the uh, <laughs> persistent and undying and unwavering loyalty of people um, who you might claim to represent. So the other thing I would say, the third point I would just say is that a state's interest would ebb and flow with the course of history. So um, maybe to move from the abstract to the very concrete, one of the chapters in the book is about how in the course of the first Balkan Wars that take place um, just on the eve of and bleeding into the First World War, in the course of the first Balkan Wars, various nations descend on the city of Salonika uh, which has the largest Sephardic population in the region. It's one of the most important cultural centers for Sephardic Jewry, one of the rare cities in Europe that had a majority Jewish population, and a place where Jews were very important merchants and very important to the overall mercantile economy. But to go back to my story, in the course of this war, a number of nations sort of descend on Salonika, especially um, Spain, Portugal and Austro-Hungary. And they begin to essentially throw papers, legal documents at families who want them. Um, they are seeking to acquire a local citizenry um, and... They each had their own strategic motives for wanting to do so. So the point is, it can be faddish. The desire for Sephardic subjects can come and go, can be appealing to a state, and then suddenly seem to be dangerous to that very same state. Um, so it's, it's a kind of churning of waters where the desires of individuals can merge with the desires of states, both of which are always shifting.
0: So it'd be fair to say that both locality and fluidity are two words that would be very helpful when thinking about your research.
1: Absolutely. And I um, I give the title of the book uh, this somewhat whimsical phrase, Extraterritorial Dreams, because I think that one of the things that came through so vividly to me is that there are a lot of fantasies involved. Uh, and sometimes fantasies can go horribly wrong. Sometimes a dream can turn into a nightmare, um, either for a state. Or for an individual. Uh, And these papers can, as I said before, make a difference between life and death. They can bring you success and um, opportunity. They can also represent constraint and even vulnerability.
0: I'm wondering about um, the holders in some ways of these papers. And you mentioned earlier that usually when we're talking about the papers, we're talking about men. Um, How did gender affect the ways in which individuals or families were granted passports?
1: like yeah so it's it's really fascinating, and i I really wanted this book not to be a history of law in the abstract, but of the way in which individuals experience law, so it's kind of a human level exploration of what citizenship meant for people um again, no clear system, no clear um guidelines, and it really came down to the very local level. a a consular agent was usually the one who would inscribe someone's name into a ledger, granting them protection, legal protection. That individual could write down simply a man's name and the assumption would be that the women and the children, their legal status hinged on that of, of the patriarch. And yet some of these consular representatives wrote down the name of women. They gave them their own line. Sometimes they even gave children their own line and then and and their own number and their own paperwork. So um, one of the things I talk about in the book is that if the proteges became legal misfits in the modern period, women really existed on the kind of outermost, the outermost sphere of legal instability. Because even if you as a woman could acquire the protection of the Italian state or the Spanish state or the Portuguese state, ultimately you weren't a citizen and and that legal status could be taken away. So if you were put on the passport of a husband or a brother and that person dies, you may lose your legal status, even though it's possible you had your own line on 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 the ledger. So uh, I follow in the book the stories of women whose legal status changed over time. Um, Maybe they were an Ottoman subject. Then they became uh, a Portuguese subject dependent on their husband or dependent on their father. Then they became a widow. And then the debate opens up. Could that widow keep her papers? Could she still be Portuguese, even though the man, her husband or her father, her brother, who, who acquired the status for her, is no longer um, legally of that nation. Mm -hmm. So it's really, it's a complex model, both for women and for children, and and in a sense, by extension, for families, too. Uh, And what fascinates me about the topic is not so much to say there's a single history that we can rewrite here, a history of Sephardic women becoming protégés, but to say when we look at the protégé system we see how diverse Jewish experiences can be that and, and individual experiences can shift depending on how old you are or whether you're a woman or a man or whether you're single or married or uh, a widow or a widower and subject, you know, living in a city at war or as boundaries shift around you and, and so on and so forth.
0: So with that in mind, are these efforts to secure protege status by Sephardi Jews, um, Individual or family endeavors, or um, was there a stake or a role for Jewish communal organizations? I'm thinking, for example, of the Alliance Israeli yes. Universal.
1: Right, right, right. Um, it could be any of the above. Usually, what I find is that individuals or families would go to a consulate to pursue this legal status uh, at one time or together. And so that would mean if you're looking through the ledgers of the Italian consulate in Izmir, say, um, you would find all of the people's names at the same coming in on the same day or the same week or the same month. But it could also be that you would have one family and they would hedge their bets. And eat, let's say they had five sons. Each son would go to a different consulate and pursue papers from a different state so that suddenly the family, without ever having left the place of their birth, becomes multinational. Sometimes there there's a wonderful Ladino memoir I talk about um, in the book, where the author describes how he plays one consulate off of another. He's just trying to see what's the best arrangement for him and his family. So he might go to three different consulates and apply to become a citizen of each, each nation, uh, simply to see what... You know, as the tides shift, what will be the most secure? And there's really nothing to stop an individual in this historical context from having the papers of more than one uh, foreign state and using them to advantage. So it wasn't, uh, there was no way to kind of cross check whether somebody was merely or simply or only British or only French or only Spanish. And
0: because of all these different efforts going on, even within one family, as you say, did any communal agency take a stand oh, on the issue yes. from or the other, or right. did they sort I'm of sorry. hands off?
1: Right. asked that earlier. And you asked about the Alliance specifically. There were many voices of the, the fact of the emergence of all of these so called legal misfits again, it's my term, it wouldn't have been used in this time caused communities, caused legal theorists. It caused individuals of a whole variety of political stripes anxiety. So the, the phenomenon of the Jewish protege was criticized from many, many perspectives. There was a Zionist critique that it represented a betrayal of the notion of the Jewish nation. There was a socialist critique because it was assumed that you had to wield influence and pay a fee, which was true in most cases, to get foreign papers. There was a kind of communitarian response that would say, by getting foreign papers, you're effectively divesting yourself of communal politics, because what you are doing is giving up your right to have a vote as a local citizen. Um, there were nationalist critiques from from every context, whether it was, you know, after the um, after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, whether it was Bulgaria or Greece or Turkey, uh, you know, or Italy, there was the uh Long into the twentieth century, there is bitterness about the thought that you might live in a nation and hold papers from somewhere else again, where you might never have lived and had no intention of living. Uh, and I'm sure I've left out more. The Alliance um, you mentioned before was a was a major French Jewish philanthropy created in the late nineteenth century that aimed to, um, in their words, regenerate or uplift. Middle Eastern and Mediterranean Jewry. And, and the vehicle for this, in their mind, was the creation of schools across um, the so called Levant, the Middle East, uh, North Africa, the Mediterranean, um, and also through the attempt to pressure um, states to grant citizenship to Jews. So there was an interesting tension that, in most cases, they felt if Jews could successfully lobby for citizenship, if nations were willing to grant Jews citizenship, the alliance like many other jewish organizations felt that that would be the crucial force for leveling opportunity and for removing barriers to jewish social professional ascension residential freedoms and so forth so on and so forth so the Allianz didn't have a static policy about the protege status, but in many ways it was anathema to what the organization really stood for, which was it tended for most of, of its years of existence in, in this period of the late 19th and early 20th century, it tended to eschew Zionism and support the idea of Jewish integration into national contexts. but by the, um, f- the f- Frenchification, let's say, and the in of Jewish um, boys and girls, and, and ultimately families. Mm-hmm.
0: To bring up another case study um, that was in your book, you discuss at length the case of Silas Aaron Hardoon, who yes. was, I believe, Baghdad-born or descended, um, longtime resident of Shanghai, whose estate mm. when he died in 1931 was valued at around, I believe, 150 million dollars.
1: Right, um, right.
0: And you say that. Um, Hardoon's status as a protege led to a debate, really an international debate, and as well as one between family members about who the estate's beneficiaries should be. How does this relate to the themes in your work?
1: Okay. Well, it's nice to be have the chance to talk about that because this was actually the case study that for me launched the project, and it was the first bit of writing that I did um around this topic of the protege status and even more generally. The, the complex legal status that Jews could occupy during the the years and decades that Ottoman authority was contracting and um, yet undetermined post-imperial um, legal context were emerging. That's really a mouthful. But in any case, to get back to Silas Aaron Hardoon, he died in 1931. He was known to be the richest foreigner in Shanghai. As you said, he had this enormous estate. He was born in Baghdad. He had made his way to China by going through India, working for a very important transnational mercantile firm by the name of uh, D. David Sassoon and Company, which mm-hmm. was a global operation owned by a Jewish family from Baghdad. It dealt in um, opium, which was then legal. It dealt in silk. It dealt in cotton. It stretched um very widely across uh, South Asia, East Asia, and and beyond. So Hardoon makes his way to Shanghai as a young uh, entrepreneur, and he settles there and he lives there for six decades, in the course of which he marries um, a a Buddhist woman uh, who... Whose father might have been Jewish—it's not clear. They are very invested in in local politics. They are very invested in in local Jewish culture. There's a, there are a couple of of works by scholars of Chinese history that engage in the history of Hardoun from very different angles. Um, for for people who are interested really in their their sort of identity and and economic and social roles in the city of Shanghai, but what interested me was the controversy that arises when he dies. When he dies, um, it's discovered that he had willed his fortune to his wife. And this is quickly um, challenged by people who claim to be cousins, carrying the name Hardun, living mostly in Baghdad, but also across uh, the Baghdadi Jewish diaspora in Calcutta and in Shanghai. And they say the money doesn't belong to her the money belongs to us because he was born in the Ottoman Empire, where the place that he was born is now the state of, of Iraq, uh, and his his estate should be adjudicated according to the law of the place of his birth. And so there is a court case, and the court case takes place in a British Supreme Court in Shanghai, and it asks the question, what was he? Was he... And, and how should his estate be judged? Should it be judged according to Ottoman law, though the empire doesn't exist? He was a British protected person. So should he be judged by British law? Should the estate be judged by Jewish law? All of these questions come up in the case. Or should it be adjudicated by so-called private international law? Uh, actually, a relatively new uh, legal subdiscipline. So that all sounds, I don't know, nitpicky and legally heady, I guess. But what's interesting as the case goes forward is that it creates a huge controversy and and draws the attention of people all over the world, Jews all over the world who are fascinated by the death of this Buddhist Jew in Shanghai, this wealthy Buddhist British Baghdadi Sephardic Jew, I mean, who wouldn't be tantalized? But it's also a legal question for states because for the, the budding state of Iraq, for the British, for other empires like the British Empire who are in control of territory in the Middle East that was once Ottoman, it is for those states a challenge to their authority. Do the people you are governing belong to you in a legal sense? Does, do, does their money belong to you? Who should control the assets? And I think it's especially touchy. And I, I go into this in the book. Um, it's especially touchy because this is a time when there are many, many subjects of the European powers in the Middle East who are occupying confusing, let's say, unthought through legal statuses, um, especially colonial subjects, subjects of protectorates and mandate regimes. And it's not entirely clear what the state's obligation to them will be and what their obligation to the state will be. And so it touches a lot of nerves and becomes a cause celeb that I try and explore from, you know, the various perspectives that were brought to bear in in the court case.
0: And is it okay to do a spoiler alert and tell the audience who wins?
1: Yes. The spoiler is that his will is honored and the wife inherits the fortune and the claims of the uh, cousins are rejected. And it is determined that the phrase British protected person would be interpreted to be the same as... British subject. And this interested me in part because it's very self-serving. There were other moments at the same time that representatives, let's say, of the British Foreign Office looked at other, parentheses, less wealthy, British protected persons and said, we're not going to honor our obligation to them. We are not going to view them as citizens. So the conclusion isn't so much that the legal category of the protege and the citizen come to be one, but that influence is everything. And Silas Hardoon, after his own death, in a sense buys himself citizenship or buys it for his wife and his, and his descendants, um, because of his influence, because of his power, because of his prestige. Uh, And and to me, this is interesting because it shows that, you know, legal history, if you write legal history from from the top down and you trust the laws as they are written to be transparent um, and to be applied equally, then you get a very, very different history of the law than if you look at individual cases and... um, and you compare the legal experience of, as this case suggests, an incredibly wealthy émigré versus a poor one. Um, Mm
0: -hmm. And in thinking about, you know, you mentioned descendants. um, I realize this is a very large question, but um, perhaps there's a case or two that could, um, you know, sort of encapsulate some of these issues. To what extent is the protege system itself compromised during World War
1: II? Right. Well, I... I go into the history of what, what becomes of the protégés only during the second world war um, in the, at the end of the book in um, a conclusion that looks forward, um, you know, beyond the time period really of the book, which, which otherwise um, stops in the 1930s, 1934 or so. Um, And I do so in order to talk about the uneven fate of Jews who were protégés or or who had inherited the protégé status from ancestors who were born in the Ottoman Empire. And what I describe is that, you know, one might think that because the Nazi regime denaturalized Jews, um, as did the Vichy regime, one would think that there wouldn't be Jewish legal misfits, that it would be obvious uh, whether you had citizenship or not, one might think that citizenship almost ceased to matter in this context. But as scholars who have studied this will already appreciate, in fact, your legal status could matter a great deal. And um, if you were a Jew living in France, or Greece, or elsewhere, who had um, the papers of a neutral nation, you could, although it didn't always mean that you could, but you could in theory, be um, exempted from the various deprivations of rights, including deportation to ultimately to the death camps. And there are extraordinary stories of people even being taken off trains, you know, on their way to be transported to the East who were saved by dint of their legal status. Um, There are also extraordinary stories of rescues of Christian consulates granting foreign papers to Jews, um, not only in the Sephardic context, but in the Ashkenazi one, in order to give them safe passage to Italy or to Spain or to Portugal. That's one piece of the story that in theory, if you hold the papers of a neutral nation, your legal autonomy could be uh, preserved and respected. And yet what happens during the Second World War is that For the Sephardic Jews, and I'm not talking now about the entire spectrum of all the legal ambiguities of of the Second World War, but for the Sephardic Jews of Ottoman descent who either have foreign papers or who who could identify a a close ancestor with foreign papers, there were cases also where the the so-called home country, um, let's pick for the moment Portugal, they might have held Portuguese papers, let's say, granted in Salonika during the Balkan Wars. Portugal didn't choose to honor those papers um, until the very end of the war, even though there are instances in which Portugal went out of its way or certain Portuguese representatives, not, not the state went out of its way to, um, to be liberal in granting passage um, to Jewish refugees. So just as the whole history of the protege experience is one of muddled legal realities, so too during the second world war legal status matters and it can save you, but it doesn't necessarily save you. And in some ways um, it makes you vulnerable because you yourself don't know the value of the papers you hold. And so what in the conclusion of the book, I try to briefly sketch out Stories both of success and of peril. And in so doing, I'm trying to emphasize that this very, very old by this point, again, early modern legal reality is continuing to shape individual Jews' lives into the 1940s. And the subtitle of, of the book includes this phrase, the Ottoman 20th century. It's uh, European citizenship. Sephardi jews and the ottoman 20th century and my point is to say even after the ottoman empire ceases to exist it it bizarrely unexpectedly it continues to matter for this population of jews um, who occupy this liminal legal world it continues to matter you know right into the 1940s and um and even longer, in fact, in in Egypt. Um, and it matters today, which, which might be something we want to discuss or not. But it matters today. There are people who still hold um, the status uh, inherited from this 19th century reality uh, across the Sephardic diaspora. And we have a new chapter today with Spain and Portugal, one might say, pursuing Jews of Iberian ancestry um, for their own reasons.
0: Right. Well, let me ask you, because we do have to wrap things up, but I'm curious to know if you've already identified the subject of your next project, and if so, if we can get like a little sneak peek of it.
1: Sure, with pleasure. Yeah, I had the the great luxury of having a a fellowship year last year in which I could focus on a new project, um, and I am working on um, a book that traces the history of a single family, of single Sephardic family of Ottoman Jewish origin that came from the city of Salonika, over the course of some five, six generations, through migration to many, many countries, and as they maintained connection and intimacy um, and a sense of being a family uh, by writing letters and corresponding through um, the trials and tribulations and successes and losses of everyday life and émigré existence.
0: Wonderful. I'm really looking forward to reading that. <laughs> so am I. <laughs> Sarah, thanks again for being on the show. It's been um, a pleasure. For everyone, again, please check out Extra Territorial Dreams, European Citizenship, Sephardi Jews, and the Ottoman 20th Century by Sarah Abravaya stein published in 2016 by Chicago University Press. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.